Welcome. Uh, tonight we'll be concluding this series. Uh, it's going to be a little bit different because we're going to cover a lot in the time that we have available. Uh, let's open with prayer for this. Heavenly Father, again, we just are those, your children, who give you the praise and the glory that you are the creator of all things. And Father, knowing that when you created this earth, you had us in mind. Even from all eternity, Father, you had us in your heart. And we just give you thanks and praise and ask that you would glorify your name, Father, through our gathering tonight. In Jesus' name. So we're going to continue our series, Creation and Evolution, Worldviews and Conflict. And again, I want to have a reminder, each of these, what are we talking about with regards to worldview? It's the overall perspective from which one sees and interprets the world. It's a collection of beliefs about life and the universe held by an individual or a group. And people naturally interpret evidence in a way that is consistent with their worldview. Now, I've pointed out that we have the same facts. You know, when we look at the world, when we study the world, we have the same facts and we practice the same science. The operational science, the scientific method, again, I spent most of my working career in research, and uh, whether you were a believer in creation or evolution, when it came to practicing science in the laboratory, it basically made no difference. The issue is how people interpret the evidence. And there are no truly impartial people. We all come to this world with a worldview, and that's shaped you know, by our culture, by our family, by our experiences, by the age in which we live. And the reality is um, we have the same set of evidence. So it comes down to what is it that makes the most sense when it comes to looking at the evidence, which model actually seems to work better? Is it a model that points to a creator, an intelligent source behind what we see? Or is it a purely naturalistic, materialistic, atheistic process? And so my intent in sharing a lot of this information here is to help people understand that this information can be viewed from a creationist point of view, and in reality, it makes more sense. So we've reviewed a variety of scientific challenges. We looked at teleology, that is the appearance of purpose and design. I even showed you a quote by Francis Crick saying to biologists, we have to constantly keep in mind that the things that we're looking at were not designed, they evolved. Basically saying we have to remind ourselves continuously to put aside the apparent view of design uh, irreducible complexity, uh, the fact that you have organs, which Charles Darwin was aware of, and now we know there's organelles inside the cells. And with modern technology, we understand that within our cells are tens of thousands of molecular machines that are built by other molecular machines. And all of these things point to what's called irreducible complexity. And this is actually true of chemical pathways as well, not just the physical apparatus, but the chemical pathways, which are multi-step. You take away one step and the chemical breaks down. You don't see, you don't hear. Then we talked about the challenges of abiogenesis, so the origin of life, and the fact that there is no credible alternative at this point. Even though there have been many ideas, there's no observational evidence that would point to something that violates one of the known laws of science, the law of biogenesis. All life comes from pre-existing life. That's what we see. That's what we observe. But evolution is based on the concept that inorganic chemicals self-organized 
and became a first living cell. And from that first living cell over eons of time, new genetic information kept being added. And we have the plethora of life that's on the earth today. And then the information content of DNA we looked at last time. And again, this is a rapidly advancing area of science. Uh, probably the most rapidly advancing area of science that there is today. Every month we're learning brand new things about DNA and about, again, the genetic information that's present. So tonight we're actually going to quickly touch on a variety of other challenges to the Darwinian model, beginning with what I call Haldane's Dilemma, and I didn't invent that term. Uh, this goes back to uh, John Burden Sanderson Haldane, who was an evolutionary biologist and a founder of what's called the Neo-Darwinian Theory or the Modern Synthesis. And he was also a founder of a field called population genetics. And as a mathematician and someone who was uh, committed to evolution and to naturalism, he worked on the math and he basically said there hasn't been nearly enough time for long generation organisms such as humans to evolve. By long generation, he's talking about in the case of humans, Human reproduction typically happens after 20 to 40 years. That's a typical generation cycle. So that's what he's meaning, as opposed to a bacteria that might replicate multiple times in a given day. Now, Haldane actually calculated that no more than 1,667 beneficial substitutions could have occurred in the supposed 10 million years since the last common ancestor of apes and humans. This is a mere one substitution per 300 generations on average. So to delve into this a little bit more, he's, in the 1950s, Haldane calculated the maximum rate of genetic change due to what he called differential survival, which I'll explain in a second. He reluctantly concluded that there is a serious problem here, which is called Haldane's dilemma. His calculations show that many species of higher vertebrates could not plausibly have evolved in the available time. So neo-Darwinism claims that random genetic mutations acted upon by natural selection is the driving force behind evolution. Natural selection, however, does not select for individual genes. Natural selection works on whole organisms. So to put that in perspective, imagine with me that someone, one of you or one of your children, is the beneficiary of some favorable mutation. So you're, you're one of the few who actually have had a mutation and it confers a benefit. So maybe you, this person can see better, can jump higher, run further, have a higher IQ, live longer, some benefit. The question then comes, how long is it going to be before that genetic mutation gets transmitted to the entire surviving human race? So we've got 8 billion people on the earth today and increasing daily. Can you ever imagine a scenario that an individual would have a genetic mutation that eventually gets transmitted to the entire surviving human race? That's what this requires. That's what the, the, the Darwinian evolution requires, okay? And that's what he called about differential survival. Uh, I, I looked up, for example, not that... Uh, Albert Einstein had a genetic mutation, but obviously we think of him as someone who had superior intelligence. Well, he had three children, and he only had one grandchild to survive to old age. I mean, so again, if, if say, he had had some favorable mutation, how long is it going to be 
before the entire human race gets that benefit. It's not going to happen. And that's the essence behind the math that Haldane was using to show that this was a significant problem. Well, it's gotten worse since his day. Chimpanzees are often cited as being the closest living biological species to humans. Recent mapping of both the human and chimpanzee genomes shows there is a surprisingly large, greater than 15% difference, or about 600 million nucleotide positions. Now, we've, we've said that the human DNA is 3.2 billion base pairs. So what's going on? Well, early on, when people tried to compare human and chimp DNA, they focused exclusively on that portion of DNA that codes for proteins. So it's transcribed and it's translated. However, the problem is we've now discovered that all of the other DNA, the, the uh, UTRs, untranslated, un, uh, actually has function. And so you have to take that into consideration. Dr. Georgia Purdom, a molecular genetics PhD from Ohio State, wrote this. Whenever you read that human and chimp DNA is 98 to 99% the same, it's simply not true. The 98 to 99% refers only to substitutions in aligned regions that's, that's protein-coding regions, things like cytochrome C or hemoglobin, where human and chimp DNA have different bases or letters. But there are many other differences as well. There are gaps in the aligned regions where there is human DNA, but there is no matching chimp DNA and vice versa. There are also millions of bases outside the aligned regions that do not match at all, but these differences are not counted. If they are counted, the similarity is only around 80%, which equals 600 million differences between human and chimp DNA. Now, taking into consideration Haldane's math that said he could account for about 1,700 substitutions in the course of 10 million years, now the issue is 600 million. The problem is getting worse and worse and worse. It's never been solved. Now, just to kind of illustrate this point of mapping, Let's say uh, you got online and you decided to order a pair of jeans, okay? And so you place your order and then your package arrives the next day and you open it up and you get jeans. <laughs> now, they both have belt loops, they both have metal button, they have zippers, they have pockets, they have rivets, they have denim, they have a front fly. And so you get on the phone and you call up the online store and say, I'm unhappy with what I just got. And they say, what's your problem? It's 98 to 99% exactly the same. And this is the issue with, with what, again, they did when they started comparing human and chimp DNA. They focused only exclusively on the protein-coding portions that had similar proteins. So all aerobic organisms have cytochrome C. And so if you compare human and chimp cytochrome C, guess what? They're essentially the same. And there's other proteins like that. They, they neglected the vast majority of the DNA, which we now know all has function. And so this is the issue that lies behind Haldane's dilemma. It's an unsolved problem. Some of the people in the evolutionary community say, well, somebody somewhere has solved this. It's never been solved. Another area, genetic entropy. Uh, I think this is a, an important area. We're going to watch a video in just a second, and the featured individual is John Sanford. 
who received his PhD from the University of Wisconsin in plant breeding and in plant genetics, and he was a professor at Cornell University for over 25 years. He started out his career as an atheist and a committed Darwinian evolutionist. Today, he is a Christian, and he believes in creation, and we'll see him in a, in a second here. What is this all about? Well, again, neo-Darwinism claims that new beneficial genetic information is being added to genomes by, of living organisms via random mutations acted upon by natural selection. That's what we just said. That's the, that's the basis. Where is the evidence that random genetic changes create information? Can you indeed change something like a freckle, a freckle into an eye, given enough time? Uh, that's something akin to changing a bicycle into a space shuttle. In reality, what is it that population geneticists the worldwide actually observe? And Dr. Sanford is one of the leading population geneticists today. In reality, what is observed is that mutations result in a loss of genetic information. Natural selection is a conservative, not a creative force. And so just take a couple examples. Some of you maybe have visited Mammoth Cave. Uh, there are blind fish, okay? And some people would say this is evolution. Well, in the cave where it's perpetually dark, fish don't need eyes. They're actually a hindrance. And so there are blind fish in the cave. Is that evolution? They've lost eyes. <laughs> there's, there's bacteria that are resistant to antibiotics, and so you've got some bacteria where the mechanism that controls the production of uh, that which, is, which controls an antibiotic is broken, and they overproduce. So those are normally not effective, not healthy bacteria, but in those rare cases where they get exposed to antibiotic, then they're actually able to overcome it. Again, it's a loss of genetic information. That's what we actually see. So this... Consider this, our species is not evolving. The data actually says that our species, and not just our species, is aging. So we have our first video. There's a problem, and it doesn't matter if you're looking at the human genome or the chimpanzee genome or any other genome. And the problem is that the information is degrading and mutations are building up in populations over time. So I've been studying genetic entropy for the last 13 years. And it's a really profound problem, and it's something widely acknowledged by geneticists, and it is the problem that bad mutations accumulate in the human genome. And this is best illustrated by just considering it on a personal level. In your body, or in my body, we have about three new mutations every time a cell divides. So this is um, sobering because it's the reason we die. And so the reason that uh, we get old and all of our systems start to break down is because of this mutational process and the accumulation of bad mutations in our genome. It's why there's an upper lifespan. Now, the problem is bigger still, because of course we already know that we're mortal, but we transmit a certain fraction of our mutations to our children. And they add more mutations to it, and then they pass it on to their children. And then they add more mutations still, and they add it to the next generation. So this is a problem not just for people, but for the whole human race. And logically, the human race should be devolving, not evolving. Basically, the human race is degenerating, 
the human genome is rusting out like a car. This is a condensed list that comes actually from the WHO. It says, scientists currently estimate that there are over 10,000 of human diseases that are known to be monogenic. What monogenic means is a single point mutation. Out of the 3.2 billion, a single substitution has resulted in these kinds of diseases. I highlighted just for one, progeria, um, this is something that you have probably seen or heard of. It affects only one in eight million children. Sufferers age at five to 10 times faster than usual, typically dying by the age of 13, usually from a heart attack or stroke. The disease is caused by a single mutation, changing only one of the 25,000 base pairs that's found in the lamin A gene. A change from cytosine to thymine can cause a tenfold drop in lifespan. So again, one of the 3.2 billion is enough that, cause, that causes this disease. And again, the reality is the human race is aging. Uh, that's what population gen geneticists know. And it's, it's a matter of faith on their part that eventually they'll find a solution because most of them continue to believe in Darwinian evolution. The data tells them one thing, but because of their prior commitment to a worldview, they continue to have faith that a solution will be found to this dilemma. Moving on, the fossil record. <clears throat> Charles Darwin said in his famous book, why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain. And this, perhaps, is the most obvious and serious objection which can be urged against the theory. The explanation lies, as I believe, in the extreme imperfection of the geological record. So when he published his book in 1859, people had been digging and looking for fossils for a number of years, and he was aware of those things that had been found. Now, what he had forecasted, again, the idea that all a life emerged from like a single cell and eventually came to be everything that's alive on the earth today, he expected to find an innumerable number of intermediate links between all of the organisms. At, at the time that he wrote, he knew that they had not been found. But he postulated that given enough time, if we keep digging, we will find them. So 120 years later, well, we are now about 120 years after Darwin, and the knowledge of the fossil record has been greatly expanded. We now have a quarter of a million fossil species, but the situation hasn't changed much. The record of evolution is still surprisingly jerky, and ironically, we have even fewer examples of evolutionary transition than we had in Darwin's time. By this, I mean that some of the classic cases of Darwinian change in the fossil record, such as the evolution of the horse in North America, have had to be discarded or modified as a result of more detailed information. And so, again, this comes from the Curator of Geology Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. Basically, what Darwin expected to find has never been found. Uh, they've had to rethink the fossil record, and we'll talk more about that. Um, from Luther Sunderland, I wrote to Dr. Colin Patterson, director of the British Museum of Natural History, 
and asked him why he didn't put a single picture of an intermediate form or a connecting link in his book on evolution. Dr. Patterson now, who has 7 million fossils in his museum, said the following when he answered my letter. I fully agree with your comments on the lack of direct illustration of evolutionary transitions in my book. If I knew of any fossils or living, I certainly would have included it. I will lay it on the line. There is not one such fossil for which one might make a watertight argument. So now we're talking 7 million fossils in his museum, and he's the overseer of it all. And he basically says there's nothing in his museum that he can point to as a clear trans transition form. And again, what Darwin predicted was that the, the fossil record would be full of these. So it did not happen. Um, moving on from here. <clears throat> the Cambrian explosion is one of the chief mysteries of the fossil record. All of the phyla, and we humans fall under the chordata phyla, all of the phyla and many of the lower taxonomic ranks appear suddenly in the Cambrian. This is the name for the geological period right at the bottom of the Paleozoic era. Uniformitarians date the Cambrian from about 541 to 485 million years ago. Evolutionists struggle to explain it, while creationists understand it as the natural consequence of all forms of life being specially created and not connected by an evolutionary ancestry. So again, what you see on the top right was the prediction of Charles Darwin. This is what he thought the fossil record would demonstrate. But actually what has been found is called the creationist orchard, where if you go down, you've got Precambrian rock, which is basement rock. And then on top of that, you have the first of the major sedimentary rock layers, the Cambrian. All of the major phyla that are found on Earth today exist in that Cambrian. Now, what the fossil record is it's a history of burial of organisms. It's not a history of the development of life on Earth. So it's not a surprise that something like 95% of all fossils are marine in nature. Uh, they were the first to be buried in the time of the flood of Noah. And, and that's basically what the fossil record is showing. Now, a few other thoughts on this. Um, I'll go to this slide first. This may or may not surprise you. These are organisms that have been found buried with dinosaur fossils. Every major invertebrate animal phylum that's alive today, fish of all types, all of today's reptile groups, birds, that includes parrots, owls, penguins, ducks, loons, albatross, cormorants, sandpipers, avocets, all of these have been found buried with dinosaurs. More than 430 mammal species, including what you see there, every major plant division. So when they've gone to dinosaur digs, they have found these fossils present. Um, Dr. Carl Werner said that he visited 60 museums that featured dinosaurs. He did not find a single complete mammal skeleton appearing in any of the dinosaur exhibits. You know, why would not the uh, museums choose to show birds and mammals along with their dinosaurs, well, it's inconvenient and it could confuse the public. <laughs> uh, hopefully you're not confused. Uh, another couple of things. Charles Darwin wrote, no organism wholly soft can be preserved. 
because he believed that fossil-bearing rock layers resulted from slow and gradual processes over long periods of time. He was definitely affected by Charles Lyell's thinking about the present is the key to the past and geology is, is ages of time. And so in that scenario, the belief was that fossils were being formed slowly as animals died and got buried. And under that scenario, again, he couldn't foresee how any soft tissue organism could survive. But we now have, of course, found fossilized jellyfish. We have fossilized dinosaur trackways or steps. We even have fossilized raindrop indentations. So basically, that all points to things having been buried very rapidly. Fossils exist because they were buried rapidly, which fits the creationist model. Also, what's not commonly talked about is that there have been a lot of fossils found out of order. A few ex examples. Pollen fossils have actually been found in the Cambrian and even Precambrian layers. Well, pollen fossils are supposed to be evidence of, of flowering plants that supposedly did not exist for hundreds of millions of years later. Uh, grass has been found fossilized in dinosaur dung, and yet evolutionists had taught that grass did not evolve until at least 10 million years after the dinosaurs had perished. Uh, we have found modern-looking birds in the stomachs of dinosaurs that are said to be 100 million years old. There's a large opossum-sized mammal that has a fossilized dinosaur in its gut. There's even a fossilized duck found in Antarctica that is dated at 70 million years. So there's a lot of anomalies in the fossil record. While clearly there's a certain pattern, there are a lot of anomalies to it. Now, here is a very famous evolutionary icon. I think you've seen various forms of this in, uh, as it says here. And, and this quote comes from Bernard Wood, a paleoanthropologist from the George Washington Department of Anthropology. He says, there is a popular image of human evolution that you'll find all over the place, from the backs of cereal packets to advertisements for expensive scientific equipment. On the left of the picture, there's an ape, stocky, jutting jaw, hunched in, knuckle-walking position. On the right, a man, graceful, high forehead, striding purposefully into the future. Between the two is a succession of figures that become ever more like humans. As the shoulders start to pull back, the torso slims down, the arms retract, the eggs extend, the cranium expands, and the chin recedes. Our progress from ape to human looks so smooth and so tidy. It's such a beguiling image that even the experts are loath to let it go, but it is an illusion. <clears throat> Reading a little bit more on that. A review of the most published modern pictorial icon of evolution shows that it is fraudulent and it is based on known inaccuracies and false information. Ironically, the progression was known to be fake when it was first published. The book that included it, after noting only the, that fragmentary fossil evidence exists for human evolution, openly admitted that the progression was drawn from largely manufactured evidence. In the author's words, Many of the figures shown here have been built up from a few fragments, a jaw, some teeth perhaps, and thus are products of educated guessing. This progression is widely recognized by those who are truly familiar with the field as being fraudulent. But again, it continues to serve an evolutionary purpose and it continues to be promoted. 
Another topic, living fossils. The scientific world was shocked in 1938 when the coelacanth fish was discovered to be living in deep waters off Madagascar. Previously, the fish was known only from the fossil record and was said to have been extinct for 65 million years. And actually, there are fossils that were classified as 400 million years old that had the coelacanth fish in it. And then, lo and behold, one was caught, and since then, multiple coelacanths have been caught in the Indian Ocean. And so, basically, they appear as unchanged according to the evolutionary timescale for 400 million years, unchanged. There are many living fossils that have been identified. And again, by living, it says these are organisms that exist today, but there are fossils of them that appear virtually identical to the living organisms. Everything from ginkgo trees, the crocodile, the Wolemi pine, horseshoe crabs, said to be 200 million years in existence, gall mites, lampshells, mollusks, many, many others. Now, this also, again, proposes a bit of a challenge to evolution because on the one hand, you have stasis, supposedly tens of millions, hundreds of millions of years with no change, and on the other hand, the claim that humans and apes originated from a common ancestor 10 million years ago with massive, rapid, abundant change having taken place. So living fossils are a bit of a mystery. What they typically say, well, these are perfectly fit for their environment, and therefore they didn't need to change. And so in the case of the colacanth fish, apparently they're saying his environment never changed for 400 million years. That's kind of hard to imagine. So thermodynamics. This one we'll just touch on very quickly. The laws of thermodynamics are well established. We talked about this in one of our first sessions. The first law addresses the conservation of energy, that no matter or energy are currently being created or destroyed. The second law addresses the availability of energy to do work. That is to say, all existing matter and energy is proceeding irreversibly towards ultimate equilibrium, which is entropy and disorder. Dwayne Gish, a PhD professor, he's now deceased, a biochemistry from University of California, wrote, of all the statements that have been made with respect to the theories of the origin of life, the statement that the second law of thermodynamics poses no problem for an evolutionary origin of life is the most absurd. The operation of natural processes on which the second law of thermodynamics is based is alone sufficient, therefore, to preclude the spontaneous evolutionary origin of the immense biological order required for the origin of life. Now, again, the first law basically says that the universe could not have created itself. The second law says the universe must have had a beginning, which, of course, both fit the creation model. And, again, what he's saying here is the, the notion that Again, inorganic chemicals would simply come together to form a living cell and, again, over vast periods of time, self-organize and become ever more complex is actually going against the laws of thermodynamics. Some people have pointed to, like, the development of a fetus to say, well, if a fetus can go from being a single cell into a complete human, obviously inorganic chemicals can organize into a cell and that can advance over eons of time to create all living things. 
But in saying that, they're overlooking a few things, as highlighted here at the bottom. It's not sufficient to simply have an open system that is one that allows energy and to have a source of energy. And so the earth you can think of as an open system because we're receiving energy from the sun, right? That's insufficient in and of themselves. What's also needed is an energy capture mechanism. And so the cell has to have like the ATP synthase. It has to have some capability of transforming available energy in order to harness it and be able to use it. And then also, it has to have an information guiding system to it, which we have in the DNA. So the fetus at the very beginning has all of these things. And over the period of nine months for human gestation, there's a lot of energy that goes into making that baby. But again, it starts having in that first cell all that it needs to advance. That's far different than the idea that inorganic chemicals would self-organize into a living cell and eventually advance. So we'll leave that topic alone for the present time and move on to something that's related. This is another icon of evolution. Maybe you are were exposed to this if you're older. Uh, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. Do you ever remember hearing that phrase? Uh, what that claim is, is that the fetus, as it develops in the, in the womb, passes through various evolutionary history of the organism. Now, this drawing that you see at the top was produced by Ernst Haeckel in 1868. Ernst Haeckel was a German medical doctor and a professor of zoology. He actively promoted Darwinism to the public and to academia. Haeckel published these fraudulent drawings in 1868. Haeckel's contemporaries spotted these drawings as frauds, and they publicized them as such as early as 1874. And yet, Haeckel's fabrications continued to be included in textbooks for over 100 years. So what you see below it is the actual organism. What Haeckel generated as the top line. That's what he said existed. He took a human embryo and he conjured up drawings of a rabbit, a chicken, a turtle, a salamander, and a fish, knowing that he was making it all up. And this icon of evolution has been used not simply to promote evolution, to promote abortion. It was commonly said, hey, during the first few months of pregnancy, you're basically no different than a fish in the womb. Therefore, you're not killing a human. You're simply eliminating a non-human organism that's passing through its evolutionary stages. Totally fake. Totally fake. And yet it continued to be publicized, and concepts behind this have continued to be used even in modern times. Reading this again, this is one of the worst cases of scientific fraud. It's shocking to find that somebody, one thought was a great scientist, was deliberately misleading. It makes me angry. What Haeckel did was to take a human embryo and copy it, pretending that the salamander and the pig and all the others look the same at the same stage of development. They don't. These are fakes. And this comes from Michael Richardson, who was actually an embryologist at St. George's Hospital in London. So again, this is widely known as fraud, and yet it was perpetrated and promoted for over a century. 
Thermodynamics, found in Scripture. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. So the second law of thermodynamics is found in Psalms, about 3,000 years old. Age estimates for the earth. Vast amounts of time are required for Darwinian evolution. Therefore, any evidence that the earth, the solar system, or the universe are not billions of years old is evidence against evolution. A large number of dating methods have been explored. Most of these indicate that the earth, solar system, and universe cannot be billions of years old. And I've listed a few of those. There's actually been about 200 different clocks that have been examined People just continue to find it a mystery, the fact that planets like Neptune and the moon Eo are continuing to give off much more heat than they're absorbing from the sun. That's a mystery. The rapid decay of the Earth's magnetic field, the lack of fossil meteorites and accumulated space dust, the lack of erosion between sedimentary rock strata. If you look at the Grand Canyon, those various layers are normally said to be millions of years apart, and yet it's like a in many cases, like a perfect plane, like a tabletop. Where's all the erosion that would happen in 10 million years? It's missing. Bent rock layers. In some cases, you've seen the rock layers that the rock is like almost shaped like a U. How would that happen? If it was hard and brittle, it would have broken. But if it was wet and not yet hardened at the point when it was formed, then it would be something that you could bend. That fits the, the model of the flood taught in Genesis. The fact that there's not enough salt in the oceans compared to the amount that's currently going in, the lack of sediment found in the oceans, the presence of carbon-14. Now, carbon-14 has a half-life of 5,730 years. That means that within 100,000 years, there should be none detectable. And yet, when we examine and look for carbon-14, we find it in diamonds that are said to be billions of years old. We find it in coal, said to be hundreds of millions of years old. And we find it in the dinosaur bones, which are said to be tens to hundreds of millions of years old. Population growth rates. We know that during the lifetime of many of us in here, we've gone on the planet Earth from 6 billion or less to 7 billion to 8 billion. And What's taught in the Darwinian model is that for hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of years, the population of hominids was essentially flat, you know, maybe constant at tens of thousands or a hundred thousands, and it remained that way until modern times. Actually, the model that starts with the Genesis flood fits population growth rates that takes you to where we are today. Soft tissues, which we're going to look at in just a second. Blood cells and intact DNA found in dinosaur fossils. Intact DNA found in ancient bacteria, said to be enclosed in rock, salt rock formations of being over a billion years old. Intact, again, DNA of bacteria in rocks said to be over a billion years old. These are all mysteries that don't fit with a long age a scenario. Now, again, this simply, again, highlights some of the other methods that have been used to try to calculate. So it says here that more than 90% of the clocks that have been examined give you an age that's less than billions of years. Well, why is it then that we routinely hear that the Earth's four and a half billion years old 
and that the universe is 14 billion years old. Well, those rely almost exclusively on radiometric dating. <clears throat> there is a problem with that. Uh, to start with, if you, if you were not aware, radiometric dating does not apply to sedimentary rocks where almost all dinosaur and other fossils are found. If you think about sedimentary rock, you've got something that's going to be fossilized like a bone, and you have mud and, or sand or clays that are coming from many, many different places. And then they are burying that bone and compacting it, right? Well, there would be no way to say how old is that when the rock has come from many, many different locations. So radiometric dating is used for igneous rocks where there are very few fossils. There's not many fossils found buried in volcanic rock, okay? So they try to look for places where there's igneous rock near a dinosaur, say, burial area, and then they try to connect the two. Well, the problem with radiometric dating is that it is totally based on certain assumptions. So the fa that's the fatal problem with the method. You have to assume how much parent and daughter elements were present in the original sample. Okay, so the idea is a parent molecule, uranium degrades, say, to lead. So you have to know how much was present at the very start. Well, well here's a, an example of a problem with that. And this is common. There was a lava flow in New Zealand in the 20th century, and a sample of that lava was collected, and it was sent to labs to do radiometric dating. So we know that the lava formed in the 20th century. They used three different radiometric methods to analyze it. The rubidium-stronium isochron gave an age of 133 million years. The samarium neodymium isochron gave an age of 197 million years. And the lead-lead age gave an age of 3.9 billion years. So you've got three different methods on the same rock sample, a rock that we know was actually formed in the last century, and they all gave very old ages. So the reality is when you sample a rock, you have to assume how much parent and daughter were present at the start. Next, you have to assume that there has been no leaching or infusion of either parent or daughter over the life of that rock. Okay, and if you have a rock that, say, has been in the ground supposedly for hundreds of millions of years to say that it's not lost any of its parent or any of its, or gained any parent or lost any of the daughter, again, that's an assumption that has to be made. And then the final assumption is that the radioactive decay rates have always been the same throughout history. And in the past, people assumed that was probably a fairly good assumption to make. But more recently, we have found, for instance, that neutrinos, which are subatomic particles, speed up radioactive decay. So if a sample got bombarded at some point in its history with a large amount of neutrinos, the radioactive decay rates would have changed. And so again, those methods all rely upon assumptions that you can't prove to be true. It's common when people do a sampling and they send it off to a lab to get a result. If the result comes back and it doesn't match their expectation, they commonly disregard the result. That's just known within the trade. They're looking for validation of what they think the result should be. And if it doesn't match, they discard it because they realize that 
these assumptions are not things that they can truly count on. Other examples of evidence that things are maybe not quite as old as thought. Um, in Alaska, we have uncovered a large amount of unfossilized dinosaur bones. So supposedly, these are bones that have been either lying on the surface or just buried shallow in the, in the layers of the soil for at least 65 billion years, and they're not fossilized. When these bones were first found, it was just assumed that they were like elk or you know, some animal, animal that lives today. But when they thoroughly examined them, they found that they were not that. They were hadrosaurs. And then more recently, and we're going to have a video here, scientists have started to discover in dinosaur fossils found all over the earth, soft biological tissue, not mineralized. And so we're going to watch a video on this. Um, one of the featured persons is Mary Schweitzer, who is a professor of anthropology or paleontology at North Carolina State. But let's just follow along with the video here. What is this material that Dr. Schweitzer found inside a dinosaur bone in 2005? Why was it reported on 60 Minutes, NBC News, BBC, and other news outlets around the world? When she first tried to publish this dinosaur soft tissue discovery in science journals, why did some reviewers refuse to publish her findings, stating that they were impossible and that no amount of evidence would convince them that her team really found original dinosaur tissue? And why did the scientists who excavated these bones report that the ground had a stench of death and that the odor from the bones reminded them of the smell of cadavers? Does any of this make sense if these bones are just petrified rocks that laid in the earth for over 67 million years? Surely there's a better explanation. Perhaps these bones were not buried 67 million years ago. If an enormous watery catastrophe recently buried these creatures under tens of feet of mud just thousands of years ago, could the worldwide flood described in the Bible be the correct explanation? Stay tuned to find out. Did you know that Dr. Schweitzer's mainstream discovery that hit the news in 2005 is just the tip of the iceberg? Hundreds of secular scientists from around the world have published over 120 science articles describing original biomaterials from dinosaurs and other ancient creatures throughout the geologic column since 1954. And it's not just one type of soft tissue or biochemical they're finding, but 16 different varieties, including blood vessels, red blood cells, hemoglobin, osteocytes, ovalbumin, chitin, unmineralized bone, collagen, chromosomes, skin pigments, VEX proteins, histone, keratin, and elastin. The most recent two discoveries are cartilage and even nerve cells from triceratops. What's so amazing about these findings is that the entire paleontology field, with thousands of scientists, completely missed these original short-lived biomaterials. Why? Because they simply believed they were just hardened rocks based on their millions of years worldview. Derek Briggs is curator of invertebrate paleontology at the Peabody Museum at Yale University. So along comes Mary Schweitzer and she's starting to look inside dinosaur bones and has made this startling discovery about the presence of red blood cells. What was your initial reaction to that? Oh, I think the same reaction as everybody's, that this was uh, totally improbable. She perhaps misinterpreted the evidence or 
was exaggerating the potential for what she was saying. So skeptical at first. Oh yeah, definitely. Why do you think it didn't occur to anybody? Well, because we have this clear understanding that part of all biological cycles involves decay. I mean, nature is set up to, to break down that material and recycle it. So it's just improbable that those kinds of very delicate structures would survive, particularly for millions of years. When you think about it, the laws of chemistry and biology and everything else that we know say that it should be gone. It should be degraded completely. This is not possible. Do it again. We got another piece of bone. We put it in the solution. We waited two or three or four weeks. Looked again, more blood vessels. We must have repeated that with probably 17 or 18 different fragments of bone. Their logic runs something like this. Only minerals, not biomaterials, can last millions of years. Fossil bones are millions of years old. Therefore, fossil bones are only minerals, not biomaterials. In light of the new overwhelming evidence, a totally different argument has started to sway some experts. Only minerals, not biomaterials, can last millions of years. All sorts of fossils, from all depths and continents, still have biomaterials. Therefore, all sorts of fossils, at all depths, and on all continents, are not millions of years old. Now that researchers have thoroughly established over the last 20 years that these soft tissues exist, has the secular field of paleontology changed their minds? Have they moved the time bracket for when these creatures lived and died? Not at all. Instead, they've gone through desperate attempts to imagine ways to extend the lifespan of these soft tissues to millions of years, rather than reconsidering the timeline. What could possibly drive a belief system like this? One where just 20 years ago, 100 out of 100 secular scientists would not expect to find dinosaur soft tissue, but then when they find it, try to explain it away by inventing preservation mechanisms that could possibly make them last for millions of years? Possible rescuing devices like iron preservation have even been loaded into mainstream dinosaur movies where characters stated, did you know the soft tissue is preserved because the iron in the dinosaur's blood generates free radicals and those are highly reactive. So the proteins in the cell membranes get all mixed up and act as a natural preservative. DNA can survive for millennia that way. This iron preservation idea has long since been debunked because the experiments used purified and concentrated hemoglobin, a product found nowhere in nature. And dinosaur bones don't contain enough iron to even start the preservation process. Even if iron somehow defied the laws of thermodynamics to preserve dinosaur blood vessels, what about the 15 other varieties of soft tissue? Let's take a closer look at just one of these soft biomaterials, collagen, which is the main structural protein found in animal connective tissue. It also makes up about 35% of bones. Numerous studies have investigated how long collagen can last before it breaks down. While most estimates are just thousands of years, some have placed the absolute theoretical maximum life of collagen between 300,000 and 900,000 years under the best possible conditions. Either way, with a maximum shelf life of less than 1 million years, What's collagen doing in dinosaur bones that are supposedly over 67 million years old? So, what really happened to the dinosaurs? Well, the obvious answer lies in the middle of America, where 13 states are filled with dinosaur remains mixed with marine and plant life. What event in history could bury birds, land animals, sea creatures, and plants over a 1 million square mile landscape under tens to hundreds of feet of mud? 
Just look at the early flood deposit, the Morrison Formation, that covers 700,000 square miles and incorporates 13 states. This formation alone is over 300 feet deep and is filled with millions upon millions of dead land and sea creatures. Just look how this formation stacks up against the 747 jet and the Empire State Building. And remember, this formation stretches across 13 states. If there was a worldwide flood that lasted about a year, we would expect all the dinosaur species in North America to be buried together at the same time and in the same regions. And this is exactly what we find. Just look at where all the Jurassic Allosaurus, Sauropods, and Stegosaurus are buried in America. Same areas, same time, same event. Can there be any doubt that a worldwide catastrophic flood would be necessary for this to occur? The Morrison Formation alone has 37 genera of dinosaurs that all bought it at the same time, and they are sandwiched between multiple layers of stratified mud tens to hundreds of feet thick which is exactly what tsunamis caused from catastrophic plate tectonics would create. An asteroid that landed thousands of miles away could not do this because these creatures are buried under tens and sometimes hundreds of feet of layered mud. But it's not just mud. They're also buried in sand and ash. This is where the biblical flood comes in. Genesis states that all of the fountains of the great deep broke open on the same day when the flood commenced. Bible interpreters tie this verse to oceanic rifting that occurred, where Earth's crust fractured into continental and oceanic plates. The rifting spread over 40,000 miles around the globe. Some rifts spread apart as molten material rose up from great depths. Geodynamic modeling shows how this process quickly pushed the continents apart. Newly formed seafloors subducted under the edges of continents, for example, along the west coast of the Americas, Hot new seafloors sank beneath less dense continental granites. Subduction dragged granite down until it snapped back up. Each time it snapped, it shoved water up. Colossal tsunamis carried mud, sand, and debris onto the land, burying the dinosaurs, birds, and shark teeth together in the layers we find them today. This subduction also explains why many of these dinosaur regions are filled with ash. When the newly created seafloor, like a global conveyor belt, slid down to the Earth's mantle, that great heat thrust material up through the continent's crust. Volcanoes erupted inland from the coastal areas. Enormous volumes of ash mixed with muddy tsunamis that buried the millions of creatures we find as fossils today. The Independence Dyke Swarm in Southern California is a good example of this process. It's a linear volcanic system over 300 miles long that belted out more ash than any system in North American history. The fact that the dinosaurs are buried in a matrix of mud, sand, and ash reveals a sudden snapshot of what happened. Because they're buried in these three products, and most of their bones are found separated and even broken, the flood described in Genesis matches the power that could bury, and not that long ago and the soft tissues and original biochemicals we find in their bones today prove their recent demise. And this leads to what may come as an uncomfortable conclusion. The Bible is right. This means the Ten Commandments actually describe the great Creator's expectations. We are guilty of sin. It also means that same Creator really did become a human, die the death of a sinner, and rise from the dead, all to save us. If God judged the whole world not that long ago because of human sin, then he will judge every one of us just as he promised in his Bible. Turn from sin. Trust Christ. 
find new life in him. Looking for answers about what the Bible teaches about creation, the fossil record, dinosaurs? Download the Genesis Apologetics app from the iTunes or Google Play stores for answers to these questions and more. This is a quote from Malcolm Mutteridge, a British journalist and philosopher. I myself am convinced that the theory of evolution, especially the extent to which it has been applied, will be one of the great jokes in the history books in the future. Posterity will marvel that so very flimsy and dubious an hypothesis could be accepted with the incredible credulity that it has. A couple of scriptures. Colossians 2, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in human body. So the place to go to get answers is to the scriptures. From 2 Corinthians Paul says, we destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. Now, obviously, Darwinian evolution is an obstacle that keeps a lot of people from trusting in Christ. And again, as we are able to present evidence like this to at least challenge their thinking, perhaps they'll open their hearts to consider the alternative, which is creation. Now, as we close out, some uh, critical thinking questions. These come from Mike Riddle with creationtraining.org. So if you hear or read anything or you're talking to an individual and they bring up an, something about Darwinian evolution, some questions to consider. How do you know it's true? Has it ever been observed? Are you making any assumptions? And then what he calls a power question, show me any observational evidence for evolution that does not require me to use faith. Now, again, a lot of evolutionists who are materialists claim that if you believe in creation, you have a religious view. But if you believe in atheism and naturalism, you have a scientific view. Not true. Um, Many of we saw the first time around, many of the greatest scientists of all time were people that believed the Bible. They were Christians, and that's where modern science was birthed in the environment where people trusted in the Bible. So how might you apply this? i give just one simple example. It comes from a textbook. Whales evolved from terrestrial ancestors, an evolutionary transition that left many signs, including fossils. Well, how do you know that's true? Has it ever been observed? Obviously not. Are you making any assumptions? And then, again, show me the observational evidence for evolution that does not require me to use faith. Um, if you are confronted with questions that deal with Darwinism, you know, evolution, there are some tremendous resources. And this closing slide uh, highlights some of the ones that I have found the most useful. Uh, the one at the top, Creation Ministries International, they actually have an office in Atlanta, but they're also based in Australia, in England, in Canada, and a variety of places. They're predominantly staffed by PhD scientists, 
And their creation.com website has a search engine that has over 15,000 resources available. So for instance, if you went in and you typed in whale evolution regarding the previous quote from the text, you'll probably get 10 to 12 articles that go into great detail explaining the fallacies associated with that view. Uh, Answers in Genesis, many of you are familiar with. You've even visited the uh, Creation Museum and the Ark up in Kentucky. Another great site with a lot of capabilities for search engines. The Institute for Creation Research was probably preceded these others. They've been around a very long time. They're a little bit more academic, but again, a great resource. The last video that we just watched comes from a, a uh, Genesis Apologetics. Uh, they have a great website, which is geared more towards the layman, and they have a number of videos and, and articles and things that are geared towards high school and even a grade school level. And then one other one that's not quite so common, but I've benefited from, Mike Riddle, who actually was uh, quoted in that last slide. He was one of the speakers. Every month they have speakers that... Um, provide just some good information. That's northwestcreation.net. So again, a lot of good resources, um, more information than you can digest. But when you do get confronted and you have a question about things pertaining to Darwin evolution, I can almost guarantee you that there's an answer that can be found on one of these sites. Okay, so let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so very much for just the, that you've given us scientific evidence that can help confirm what's recorded in the scriptures. We thank you, Lord God, that we have a faith that's based on solid footing. Um, Father, we believe your word, we trust in your word, but we thank you that it speaks of the truth and you are the creator of all things and you're the creator of science and you're the one who've given us the charge to study and, and to learn. And thank you, Lord God, for all those that have preceded us, that have taken the time to truly search out these things and to make these kinds of things known to us. And I just pray that you would use this to build our faith, just increase our trust and our reliance upon you, and we will continue to give you the glory and the praise, acknowledging that you're the creator of all, and you are the lover of our souls and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen.